the social and political movements that we are seeing in India, like the Dalit Bahujan and other environmental issues and other identity uh, movements like uh, women movement and other movements, how these movements are being manipulated or how these movements have been used to increase the fault lines, the short social fault lines that are lying in India and create an ecosystem that where the integral unity of the Indian nation state, Indian knowledge system, it is broken and we have with us our other distinguished speakers as well. Uh, we have Dr. Tribhuvan Singh, who has, uh, who is working on uh, how the caste has been manipulated by uh, the Breaking India forces. His work is also inspired by Rajivji. We have uh, Professor Grishan Jhaji. Uh, we have our other distinguished speakers as well. They will. Chirpin, once Rajivji starts his uh, keynote lecture, then we can follow with the other questions. And we are waiting for Odit Rajji to come and present his version. Thank you. We have Rajivji. Thank you. Well, thank you for thank you for inviting me. Can you hear? Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. It's my sixth or seventh time here. I've been to the Sanskrit department and spoken once in the philosophy department, R.P. Singh's English department. Uh, once we had this science congress, so several times, Kapil Kapoor also invited me. So uh, each one, each one is a little different. <coughs> and I'm delighted to talk on this subject of decolonizing. I call it decolonizing JNU and, uh, and the rest of the academy. Because, you know, we always have to, we, people ask me, what should I do? So I always say you first apply it to yourself. Each one has to, we have to decolonize ourselves and the organization, institution we are in. Then we can, you know, talk about to other people. So decolonizing requires understanding what is colonization. And colonization is not just, you know, sovereignty being uh, usurped by some foreign power. And so it's not that uh, British left and gave us sovereignty and so we are decolonized. That is one level. So it's not uh, that, uh, there is also a whole ideological colonization, ideological paradigms, vocabularies, language. We're using a colonial language now. Uh, all these are part of the colonial uh, mindset, mental colonization. And then there is the colonial mindset and uh, ideologies get uh, taught to leaders. A human resource gets developed. You know, thinkers, scholars, NGOs, activists, politicians, all these kind of people get developed. So the second part is that this ideology is put into human resource training. And so a lot of people who are colonized emerge. The ideology by itself will just sit there, but you have to put it in minds of people. And then third is institutions which replicate this, pass it on from generation to generation. So uh, these are these kind of this kind of decolonization hasn't gone away. Uh, this kind of colonization hasn't gone away. In fact, I will argue that it's getting worse. And the colonization, which was British-based, has shifted to American-based, more and more. Can you hear me? Uh, is, is, okay, maybe I have to be closer. Okay. So this morning, 
uh, I was at the NDTV. There was a show being recorded, which is called We the People, and this is a this is short. This uh, will be viewed tomorrow in the evening. And this uh, episode, I was there with many other people. Uh, this episode is about NGOs, especially foreign country NGOs, and that has to do with colonization. It's very interesting that the majority of the people speaking. One or two of them were from the NGOs and Greenpeace and so on, but many of the people speaking were saying that there are no colonization. This is how we want. This is, and Lord Meghnaath Desai, member of Parliament in the House of Lords in Britain, saying that uh, uh, British Parliament carrying out hearings and investigating what is happening in India is part of the globalization. Why should you be afraid? So I had to, after hearing it a few times, I had to tell him that, with all due respects to the British Parliament, and you are a member of that. But the point is, we've been decolonized for a while, at least sovereignty-wise, and we don't need that advice. And uh, the British Parliament is not uh, elected by Indians, and it is not the people are not appointed by Indians. They are not accountable to Indians; they are accountable to their own citizens. And so, why would we foolishly go there and try to get uh, rescue, get them to rescue us from problems? So, the whole idea that they are like Mabap who are going to look after us and our NGOs who are running there uh, is, a, is a sign of colonization. So uh, the ideologies that these NGOs represent, uh, which are all formulated somewhere else, whether it is climate, whether it is human rights, whether it is you know what should be your nuclear policy, uh, all of these things, they 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 tend to be from somewhere else. They're not uh, uh, Indian. And when they talk about globalization, that is all globalization. I mentioned that there is no. Africa represented, no African voice represented in these global NGOs. There's no African point of view or Latin American point of view. There are no globalized Indian NGOs. Uh, the, the NGOs tend to be a very Western phenomenon to kind of create a non-governmental way of entry for, for and influence young people all over the world. Now, there's nothing wrong in some many of the causes, and many of the NGOs are perfectly fine. But there has to be some due diligence, some scrutiny, which has not happened. So that is a major uh, part of uh, colonization. <coughs> this is uh, uh, the Hello. home of uh, Ramila Thapar. So I will have to say Hello. that part of decolonization has to be Hello. decolonizing from Hello. Ramila Thapar, Irfan Habib, and people like that, because they have done a Hello. lot of Hello. damage uh, in the way history was written. Uh, they uh, until then, uh, R.C. Majumdar wrote uh, History Hello. of India multiple volumes. After independence, that became very important to get rid of British writings and put new writings. But this lasted for only a while, and then, especially during the Indira Gandhi era, uh, it was very important for Indira Gandhi's vote bank politics to pander to various uh, communities and give them a sense of separateness, sense of being victims, sense that uh, the rest of the country had been bad to them; they need to be looked after. So this vote banking and fragmentation politics starts. And these historians lend their uh, academic and intellectual minds to this project, and so this is very dangerous. And this has been going on; it's getting worse. It hasn't. There's no sign to stop it. So they they started this uh, invasion theory of India. That India is basically Indian history chapters are basically the chapters of invaders. So first, some Aryans come; they bring Sanskrit and Vedas. Then some maybe Greeks come. And they bring astronomy and some uh, logic, philosophy, 
then some others come and then finally the Muslims come and they give uh, tikka, chicken tikka and sitar and kabla and some monuments. And then British come and British give, you know, cricket and uh, things like that, railways. And now we should get Americans to bring hum human rights. This, this, is the, this is the invasion theory of India. Or maybe we should bring Chinese because they'll build factories and all of us will get jobs. Or who knows? So this is, this is a very real, this is people who really are thinking like that. It's surprising and shocking. Uh, that when you, when you oppose it, they'll give you, brand, they'll brand you, they'll call you all kind of names. And this is, a, this is a very strange thing, you know, that you can't even criticize this. You can't even ask them for proof of uh, some of the historical claims they're making. So the, I uh, started uh, coining my own vocabulary. And the techniques I use are, I call reversing the gaze, which means I, I look at them from our drishti, from our point of view, I reverse the gaze. And I've written four books. <laughs> the first book was uh, Invading the Sacred, uh, which um, talks about how the West has uh, distorted Hinduism, deities, uh, you know, symbols, rituals, philosophies, family life, all kinds of things. And I, uh, that has become a huge movement. Now a lot of people are taking that knowledge and developing new ideas of their own. And then the next one was Breaking India, which I, I have here a copy because I'm waiting for Udit Raj since I name him here. Uh, the uh, Breaking India is a study on how uh, funding sources and ideological sources in the West, USA and Europe, uh, those places, have uh, co-opted and appropriated a lot of NGOs and a lot of uh, uh, minority groups, groups that are supposed to be championing some causes, but they're actually loyalty is somewhere else. Uh, the leaders are appointed by someone else, much of their money comes, certainly the ideology comes from there, a lot of legitimacy and the glamour of sending them on tours and trips comes from there. So these I call the Breaking India Forces. And these uh, Breaking India Forces are uh, a kind of result of a colonized mind because you do not find Breaking India Forces or Breaking China Forces within China. You don't find Breaking Japan Forces. And you don't find breaking Russia forces. These kind of countries don't put up with this nonsense. But India is a very soft target. Uh, it's very difficult to even get three or four sentences in a row out in a show like NDTV or uh, in a, most of the forums without all kind of people jumping on you. It's very difficult to uh, talk about it even in India. It's easier to talk about these things in the US. You know, I find that more people are interested in hearing about all this. <clears throat> so, uh, the literary festivals also. I, I was at the uh, uh, Jaipur Literary Festival this time. A lot of colonial mindset in the type of topics, the type of voices. Uh, and, you know, you can't... I used to think that the problem lies with some small group of people and you get rid of them. It's not true. The problem is very widespread. It's in the media, it's in government policy, think tanks, uh, NGOs, academics. <clears throat> and it's also in the public. It seems that the public has also bought off into this, that this is best for us. So um, fighting it is not, uh, fighting it is not uh, an easy, easy thing to do. <clears throat> There's a premium on English language. So I had to get a chartered accountant because some family uh, thing had to be done 
एंड वेन आई आस्ट आई टोल्ड वेरी क्लियरली के जो हिंदी में बोलते हैं वो हमको दीजिए बिकॉज इट विल कॉस्ट वन थर्ड इज मच एंड दैट इज ट्रू एंड इवन दे टोल मी के ठीक है जो पॉलिश इंग्लिश स्पीकिंग सोफिस्टिकेटेड होगा ही डू द सेम थिंग चार्ज यू थ्री टाइम्स दिस इज ट्रू ऑफ लॉयर ऑल्सो somebody recommended me very high class lawyer some ordinary property transaction thing and then my cousin says ki ye to bahut hi mehanga hai main i'll get you my lawyer and he was basically chewing pan and having his smoking and telling you how ah, very smart guy very very intelligent fellow down to earth and for a fraction of that he got these things done so i think there india may complex hai india may complex hai and therefore everybody wants to anglicize because the market value will go up whether it's job whether it's matrimonial or whatever it is market value go so it could be that if china rises you know then in 15 20 years everybody want to learn mandarin and then uh, uh, indians will get plastic surgery to have chinese eyes <laughs> instead of whiteness cream it will be ad will say uh, you know oriental eyes mandarin speaking girl looking for something something like that <laughs> so we are really kind of in, filled with inferiority complex i mean it's very strange that we not able to project who we are in a positive sense so one of the projects i have is i call it the indian grand narrative which means that after criticizing all this <coughs> we need to replace it with a positive sense of who we are and in the indian grand narrative we have to talk about the history of indian science and technology we are doing a project is a project here also in jnu which is a large project lot of uh, different uh, kinds of scientific technological things have to be brought in uh, in, in the proper uh, understanding of the historical accomplishments of indian economy manufacturing economy because you know if you ask many times i have been talked to uh, asked to speak in american schools so uh, i used to ask them why why should uh, why should americans study uh, americans were studying history study india and even in conferences like this many school teachers sitting there nobody would find any obvious reason so i said well where was columbus going when he was he ended up here and then maybe they get an idea they say oh yeah yeah he was probably going for india but they haven't thought through why was he looking for india what was so important and the whole the whole uh, trade the whole trade that europe had with india and china was so important for europe to get goods because they did not did not make uh, medicines herbal medicines and textiles and steel and all kinds of goods that came from india and china uh, it was very important for them and the only route was uh, the main route was uh, the land route and the ottoman empire which is muslims from turkey they created this ottoman empire right in between so it took all of central asia turkey and that was under the ottoman empire so there was no route between india china on one side and europe on the other side and therefore the europeans were starved of these asian goods for a long time and there was a huge uh, attempt to find some sea route and that is why vasco da gama goes one way uh, around africa and columbus goes the other way thinking he will reach india this is like uh, you know today's venture capitalists looking for some new breakthrough new breakthrough game changing discovery so the uh, the in those days finding a new route uh, that would get you these goods without having to go through the ottomans uh, would be a very big breakthrough this is not taught even our people don't know this even our do people don't know that when vasco da gama came uh, his ship was 
following, he hired a Gujarati sailor from Africa, from East, from West Africa to go around Africa to the other side. He 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 followed a Gujarati sailor. So this is this is, uh, and you know when we talk about globalization of trade, we think that it's something new, but actually the colonial era, the European colonial era, closed the trade which used to be open. There used to be Indian Ocean open trade. There were no uh, customs, immigrations, people you were traveling around uh, from Africa to India, South India, all the way to these Southeast Asian countries up to China and back. The Indian Ocean trade was thriving and uh, the land route, the Silk Route was also thriving. So there was a global economy and, and uh, uh, this was closed because the colonization meant that each of the colonizers wanted to control control markets, control their supplies, control their, uh, their uh, you know, finished goods being sold somewhere, competing with each other, uh, with other colonizers. And so the, mar the whole world trade got closed and now it's being reopened. So it's not a globalization, it's re-globalization. That is what is a better term. But we don't learn all these things. We, we, uh, so this is a very large amount of, uh, very large amount of <coughs> rewriting history. And then there is a problem on the other side, which is the tendency to exaggerate and chauvinism and say that everything we had, which is also incorrect. And that is a good way to lose credibility. If you aren't rigorous, if you don't subject your discoveries to due diligence and analysis and criticism by opponents, then you are also falling into the trap of you know, fighting one exaggeration with another exaggeration, fighting one lies with another lies. And that's very wrong. So, uh, I, we, my foundation, we, we are starting, uh, we have started uh, 20 volumes on history of Indian science and technology. And we made a decision not to do anything that we can't prove in a scientific way. So, uh, we've got nine volumes out on things like metallurgy, textiles, water management, and so on. And every one of them is based on physical evidence. You can actually go someplace, look at some samples, and you can prove something scientifically. So, for example, we don't include things like uh, Pushpak Viman or uh, nuclear bombs in the Mahabharata. So I was asked yesterday, how, how can you nuclear bombs? So I told him that if a nuclear bomb exploded even 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, there would still be radioactivity. And, and if you take a Geiger counter which doesn't cost too much money, you'll be able to detect radioactivity today. So show me any place which has radioactivity, then I'll believe it. And if, there, if, somebody, if somebody could find such a thing, it would be quite big news by now. So I can't, as a scientist, as a trained scientist, I can't believe it. But I can believe so many other things, so many other great things in mathematics, in astronomy, in chemistry, in physics, that are in medicine, that are fantastic. We don't need to lie and exaggerate. Uh, nor is it a good idea to think that decolonizing means we sort of go back to a Vedic perfect age. We, we can't go back, we have to go forward. For one thing, uh, in the Vedic age, you did not have 1.2 billion people. Maybe you had 3, three million, 4 million, 5 million. Even in uh, British times, the whole of South Asia was 300 million. One-fourth of, uh, if you consider South Asia today to be 1.5 billion, including Pakistan and Bangladesh, it was one-fifth of that, even British era. So uh, probably time of uh, Mughals was like 100 million. So if you keep going back, uh, the Vedic era was probably less than 5 million. So when you have gone from 5 million to 
you know, 1.5 billion, that's a, what, 50 times or something like that increase. Deforestation, it was full of forests. The whole uh, supply of uh, raw material and agriculture and food was huge for a very small population. So certain lifestyle was good. But now you cannot have that lifestyle. You need very high density use of land, natural resources, and people want a different lifestyle. They want things today that people those times didn't want. So you cannot have the same things and have a viable society. So we have to also be realistic that decolonization is not going back. Decolonization means that we use our parameters, our way of thinking, our values, our lifestyle, our ideas, our, our sanskriti to go forward. And this is, this is therefore uh, a lot more complex than just getting rid of the, some colonizer. You have to now rebuild a society using your own, own terms. So um, one of the worst things that happened, uh, and I'd like to hear your talk on this, on the caste issue. Yeah, one of the, which is mentioned here, but I, I want to hear him. Uh, one of the worst things that happened in the, as a result of the colonial period is the uh, is this whole fixation of fixing things into a ca rigid castes, which wasn't so rigid. And this is done, it's explained here how Lord Risley, he was, uh, he was a racist, very well-known racist. In Europe, after, after Darwin comes up with the theory of evolution, some people take Darwin's idea and start talking about human races being less evolved and more evolved. Uh, uh, even though Darwin did not want to apply it that way, he was talking about plants and animals and how they evolve and all that. But some people started saying that the Africans are less evolved, Europeans are more evolved and so on. So uh, this, uh, this uh, evolution of races uh, uh, became known as race science. It was a science taught in European uh, uh, universities called race science. It was considered knowledge, uh, a branch of science. And there you would study uh, races from a scientific point of view to discuss who's better, worse race, you know, all that. And uh, Lizzie, Risley, was Lord Risley, was a race scientist who was appointed to be the census commissioner of India. So his job was to come up with the census of India uh, using the framework of race. Okay. So this framework of race that he, Liz, Risley did in 1881, 91, 2000, I mean, uh, uh, 1901, like the, every 10 years there was a census. So he started listing the different jatis and he called them castes. Casta is a Portuguese word, it's not even a Sanskrit word. So he referred to them as castas or castes. And he took all the jatis, made his own judgment on who he thought is more superior and who's inferior, based on who resembled more some Europeans, who was closer to them, or who was better off in terms of <coughs> economic strata. So he made, a, he made his own hierarchy. And in his first census report, when he's writing his comments in the beginning, of his census report. He says that some of these people are so ignorant they don't even know which caste they are. I have to tell them which caste they are. Yeah, because the, the head of the jati would say, we don't fit in your framework. Or we can't tell you how, how many people are here, there. We can't even relate to this. It was a foreign framework forced on them. But gradually, people started complying with this colonial lens of uh, caste framework because this is how you could get facilities from the government. You had to be, you had to be included in the government uh, naksha, in their map. You had to be included somewhere. You had to fit somewhere. And then you could 
uh, get the facilities from government, whatever the government facilities were, <coughs> because the British were running the government. So, you know, if you wanted any facilities, you have you can't be an outsider to it. If you were an outsider, those people were called tribes. So even tribe is a, a kind of a very prejudiced term. We should not use to some jatis. We should not call them tribes. Tribes is a is a also a colonial term for people that they were not able to quote civilize. Those they could bring into their framework and put them in a hierarchy of you are upper caste, lower caste, this one, that one, that one. Those were are called castes, and then the others are called tribes. And they also had this criminal tribes act because some other tribes would fight. Uh, by what today would be called terrorists, you know? they would fight for their homeland. They would fight for their homeland. They did not want British cutting the forest and building railways and so on. They felt that uh, the British are disrupting their their economy, their ecosystem, and so these tribes, so-called tribes, these communities living in forest areas, would uh, uh, you know sabotage some convoy and all that, and they were uh, considered very terrible people, and so they were called criminal tribes. So the Criminal Tribes Act uh, said that uh, any member of one of these tribes is a criminal by birth. So may means a newborn baby. From the moment he's born, he's already a criminal. So, that, so these, these they were uh, subject to Holocaust. We don't uh, genocide. We don't talk about these things. Thugs. We've accepted the word thug as a pejorative, but it's a jati. There's nothing pejorative about them. It's like Patel or Malhotra or Kapoor or Smith or uh, you know whatever, it's just a it's just a community. But the British characterized them, branded them as a criminal tribe, and among the worst. And so after enough usage, the word thug became a we also accepted as a, you know it's a if somebody's a thug it means that he's a criminal kind of person. But it was just the name of a community. So uh, this is this is uh, th this whole casteization of India is being blamed. Now the worst thing is that they start blaming the Indians for it. So after creating this, then they're saying this is part of your heritage and you guys are caste or casteist and all that. But actually this has been imposed on us. So what would I do? I would remove all privileges based on collective identity, like caste, and I would give privileges based on individual need and individual merit. So if a person is poor, he's poor. He needs help. If a person is physically disabled or in some underprivileged situation, and there has to be a criteria for what constitutes, you know, being underprivileged. So anybody who is underprivileged as an individual needs help. It has nothing to do with his fathers, great fathers, and with the rest of the people in his caste, because you can have billionaire Dalits also, and you can have poor Brahmins also. In fact, you do. So it has to be once you shift this uh, emphasis from caste based privilege to privilege based on individual need. Then you also dismantle the whole the whole caste vote bank kind of structure because then, you know, rather than giving vote to a political bank who's going to look after your whole caste, that no longer would be the case. So these are very big sweeping changes if they are ever uh, going to happen. It will take a lot of courage for from the people. The, uh, the final thing I want to say, and then turn over to others to speak, but the the I, I, the example of uh, colonization I want to give is uh, from uh, my new book that I'm working on, which is on uh, Sanskrit hijacking of Sanskrit uh, by a group of people uh, led by a scholar called Sheldon Pollock in in the U.S. What they are doing is uh, 
they have they have their own history history he has developed his own history of sanskrit i won't discuss the details i gave a talk in the sanskrit department in delhi university it was huge attended a lot of people came and we are thinking of doing a seminar in the middle of the year and you know jane you should be big part in that um and i'm writing a book on this but just to give you an essence of it they what that school of polak has done is they really want to undermine sanskrit and make the case that rather than the lingua franca that links all the languages in the traditional uh, uh, sense uh, this role should be played by english and uh, because sanskrit can't play the role so this setting aside of sanskrit is very important for their goal and the and the revival of sanskrit studies they are promoting the sanskrit studies the revival of sanskrit studies should be through the western lens so they've come up with their own theories of language literature uh, you know how you how you interpret things philology political philology it should all be through the lens of uh, western thought and the way they interpret greek and latin is how they're going to apply that to sanskrit and uh, therefore oral sanskrit uh, they don't recognize as a legitimate sanskrit uh, they think that the, according to them the history of sanskrit starts when writing starts which means that huge early period of history when it was oral is not recognized the reason being that you know they don't have any tools how you tell how you uh, how you study an oral language since greek latin so in their own past in the european past languages were not sophisticated as oral traditions they didn't have a very sophisticated oral tradition so they don't recognize it and 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 the, there are many such distortions uh, in in the history of sanskrit and the distortion of ramayan i i won't get into but a lot of distortions on what is ramayan how they interpret ramayan they have their own uh, interpretation on the relationship between sanskrit and the indian vernaculars so that also is a problem for us and then why sanskrit spread through much of asia without violence without any conquering army without any uh, force how did it spread they, they understand that it spread peacefully but they're trying to come up with a theory so they come up with a very uh, interesting conspiracy theory that the brahmin and the king conspired to keep the people under control to rule and oppress over people so the brahmin's job was to make the king look divine he would do a ritual magic magic ritual so that everyone would think the king is become divine and they would therefore obey and this uh, divine king could become a dictator had no norms rules nothing applying to him and he would be very thankful to the brahmin and keep the brahmin well fed and looked after because the brahmin is the one who is giving him this stature of being the divine king so there kind of a conspiracy and then the brahmin would send some people to the next kingdom and the next kingdom so over a period of several centuries much of asia south asia and southeast asia were taken over by uh, a kind of sanskrit colonization if you will that's what their thesis is so uh, this whole lot of uh, very heavy material they produced and i tried to get help from because my knowledge is limited and i have limited time and i uh, i cannot write all this and think all this i wanted many people to help me so the uh, people i got in india to help me figure out certain aspects none of them could decode what pollock is writing because it's very heavy in uh, complex dense english 
using arguments and philosophies and theories which uh, our traditional people would not know. So the, uh, what they're creating is a new kind of new era of Sanskrit where our traditional Sanskrit scholars will be outsiders. They will not even know what's going on. They will not be able to understand what's going on. They'll have to go to a Western country and learn how to study Sanskrit from the Western point of view. Otherwise, they won't even get a job they, because the whole system will be changed. Now, the reason this Pollock school became particularly dangerous and particularly important for me is that uh, the previous government gave him a Padam Shiri, so he became legitimate. He's produced a lot of PhDs who got prominent jobs in important uh, places in India. Narayan Murthy's foundation uh, given him huge number of millions of dollars of grant to be the editor-in-chief and, and of a project in, at Harvard to translate many old texts into English. And uh, they want to translate 500 Indian texts and create a massive Murthy library. And the, in, the interpretation of these texts and uh, what the words mean, how to interpret the stories, which stories to select, what, uh, you know, how to portray is being done by that group. So they, they have come up with a theory called political philology, which is the way to interpret these texts, Indian texts. And political philology, as he explains it, is an interpretation to show oppression. Social oppression is the way to interpret Indian texts. So when you are when you're looking at a, a text, you're not looking at it from the point of view of the spiritual value or other cultural value that Indians have for that text, but you are going to look at it from the point of view of who was oppressing whom, and how do you figure, how do you t decide and what what are the rules by for telling uh, oppressor oppression kind of game that that society was full of as if there was nothing else happening in Indian society. Of course, there is oppression, but there is oppression in Latin society, Greek society, in modern American society today. Uh, there is oppression in and it's bad and the, the oppression has to be fought. But people don't study English from the point of view of uh, a language of oppression. People don't study German or French or Russian or Chinese, they don't study like that. They don't study Arabic like that. Of course, all those cultures have oppression. But somehow picking on Sanskrit as a language of oppression became a very deep uh, project uh, of uh, Sheldon Pollock and his, his group. So I'm uh, uh, working on a book on that. So my uh, scope of studying these colonial effects and decolonizing is pretty vast. And um, I, I think I'll stop and turn over to other people, then we'll have a discussion. Thank you. You can mention role of missionaries in colonization. Yeah, missionaries. You read my books, it's full of uh, all this discussion on missionaries. I mean, I didn't go through every one of those. In fact, in this book, Breaking India, uh, I call the, the, the left-wing interventions and the right-wing interventions. And the missionaries are part of the right-wing intervention. The left-wing intervention are the leftists, as he said, the Maoists and all these human rights groups and so on. Missionaries are a very important part of the Breaking India. In fact, uh, Obama, when he came and scolded India for no religious freedom and whatnot, complete nonsense. The point is, Obama is not a scholar himself. He doesn't know these things. He was briefed by a, an organization called the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. It's a government of U.S. body put up by the Congress. Not a single member of that is a Hindu, Buddhist, or uh, Jain, or Sikh. They are all Judeo-Christian people. Uh, and uh, their job is to uh, wag a finger at what some of the other countries are doing wrong. 
uh, United States is not within the scope of their study. So they do not, they do, they do a report on everybody else and they classify the countries into, you know, worst one, second tier, third tier like that and India is in the second worst. It is just one level better than uh, Saudi Arabia and North Korea. It's in the same, same level of lack of religious freedom, same category as Pakistan, India. So you can see how much nonsense there is. So in this book, and I'm the only person who's done it, and all the time I've been for years saying, why aren't the Indian government doing it? Why aren't Indian scholars? Why isn't there somebody in a PhD doing this or whatever? But I, I could not get many people interested. I have done a, a every year's report since 2001, every year's report I've analyzed on the India sector and what is wrong with it. Yeah, And people like John Dayal gone and given and some other people have gone and given testimony. Uh, and I'm quite <coughs> concerned about that. And I pointed it out. I had a debate with John Dayal a few weeks ago and I asked him in front of the debate. I, I, uh, after he was done talking, I was done talking. Then I asked the audience, what should be our posture towards Indians who go overseas and give testimony against India on grounds of human rights in foreign countries and ask for sanctions. I didn't even mention him, but of course I was thinking of him. And he quickly got the mic and said, they are traitors who should be punished. So I'm waiting for, uh, I think uh, Abhishek has the video. Yeah, you got it, no? So we're going to put that video up uh, on the YouTube. And, and uh, then we'll ask him that, that uh, John Dayalji, were you referring to yourself? Uh, because the, the testimony he gave, the Americans are very clever. I mean, they got people's names, they got them videotaped, it's public record. Uh, it says our great so-and-so uh, human rights activists, they praise these guys, they fly them over with first-class tickets and all. I mean, they, he came and he gave this testimony, it's all on the record. He can't, he can't deny. And it's not just one year, it's year after year. So you see, I'm not somebody who wants uh, to be vindictive and all that. I just would like him to reverse his stand. That's all I would like him to I would like him to say, okay, I no longer do that. Maybe I did it at uh, one point in time. I'm wiser. We all make mistakes. That's what I want, is that going forward, that will make us all a better society, that we, can, we know how to solve problems. Even this morning, when they were talking about we have all these problems here, there, uh, you know, the, the people in the NDTV show, uh, my position was, don't we have a legal framework? Why aren't you filing cases here? We have. Then, then they would say, oh, you know, uh, so and so people don't have rights. Well, of course they have rights. They, they they have a right in democracy to elect the right people. They have a. We can amend the legal system. It's better than going to another country and asking for help from them. So the the mischief being done by the missionaries is a very important part. The U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom has been dominated by World Vision. Lutheran Church, um, Mormon Church, uh, Dalit Freedom Network. I would say five or six of the institutions are the prominent ones that constantly supply, because they have lobbying power, they constantly supply uh, you know, the commissioners and the main members of that board. And then these people, basically their job, they have all got a lot of staff and funding. Their job is to keep developing what I call atrocity literature. The term atrocity literature, which is explained here, is a term from American history. Uh, atrocity literature, they've described very well, American historians have, that when America wanted to invade somebody, you know, Mexico was invaded, and that's where California, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, the major states, about 30% or 25% of U.S. territory, was invaded by from Mexico. For no reason, there was no war, provocation, it was just like there, 
bad people, they, are, they have bad human rights, they are abusing their women and they are not looking after their children. This kind of atrocity literature would drum up support in the Congress and Senate that we can invade them. Similarly, when it was time to invade Philippines, another country far away across the ocean hadn't provoked atrocity literature, Vietnam, South Korea, recently Iraq. Whole, whole atrocity literature on Saddam Hussein is basically doing this, that, that, that. But of course, no atrocity literature has come out on Saudi Arabia because they are supplying us oil. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't atrocity literature. It, there is a data bank of atrocity literature. It's huge. But once it's decided, button is pushed, then you will see CNN and everybody just day and night pumping out these uh, documentaries. So I could see from the day a particular senator who is very important made the statement uh, that we should target Iraq while the 9-11 happened from Afghanistan and Pakistan, but he took the stand that we should uh, target Iraq. You could see within 24 hours the amount of documentaries and newspaper reports of atrocities coming out is like huge amount. Obviously, they didn't go and get that immediately. They had been building it up all along. So today the data bank on Pakistan is huge, on India is huge, on Nepal is huge. Most countries that they may need leverage to pressure them, they've got a huge database of atrocity literature. So this is something that our NGOs ought to know, and our activists and intellectuals, some of them are doing it willingly and knowingly. Some of them are probably don't want to know. Their policy probably is that, look, don't tell me this, I don't want to know. I want to sleep at night, I'll pretend I'm not part of this, but I'm just doing my job. Yeah. And, and then there may be people that are too junior, too junior in their whole machinery, that they really aren't uh, playing a decisive role, but they're just providing some support. And without them, it won't happen, but they're providing some support. So that's the that's my view on um, uh, the role of uh, missionaries in the breaking India. Now, there are a couple of things that came out of uh, Rajivji's talk. And it's a complex infrastructure that is being deployed there are various institutions, individuals, and theories that are uh, working on uh, working in conjunction on a particular project that we have breaking India. And this breaking India concept is uh, propounded by Rajivji to understand that how these mechanisms are being deployed. And two things that came out particularly is about uh, the caste and uh, the academia. Now we see that there are two groups that are working on uh, through the culture front and through uh, the there is uh, one is left wing and the other one is uh, the missionary uh, inspired uh, particular uh, group here that is active that is uh, giving a Dalit and Bahujan interpretation of Indian history and Indian society.